Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Scott Pruitt's ethical lapses are reaching legendary proportions. We'll consider what his tenure at the EPA means for protecting our air, our water, and endangered species. Film contributor Milo Stalek talks with director Jason Reitman. His latest film is Tully. And on Weekend Passport, Jose Andres, one of the world's great chefs. He's known for bucking Trump and feeding Puerto Rico. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. There are 11 federal investigations looking into the behavior of Scott Pruitt. Here's an audio medley of media coverage about the embattled EPA chief. Scandal-ridden EPA chief Scott Pruitt blamed for conduct in office that has now led to 11 federal investigations. A $43,000 secure phone booth. And a bulletproof desk in his office. He spent $832,000 in the first quarter of his term on security costs, nearly double the amount spent by his predecessors during the Obama administration. Unprecedented 24-7 security detail has gone with him on personal trips to the Rose Bowl, family vacation to Disneyland. Two aides getting $80,000 worth of pay raises. The money for those pay raises came from the Safe Drinking Water Act. He's saying publicly that he had no idea how this happened. Well, the Washington Post now reports that Scott Pruitt not only knew about those pay raises, he signed off on them himself. Pay $50 a night for this D.C. apartment. Owned by the wife of an energy lobbyist. More than $105,000 on first class flights in his first year alone on the job. President Trump is defending his embattled EPA chief tweeting Saturday that Pruitt is doing a great job. There are almost daily revelations about Scott Pruitt. The Washington Post has written this week about how campaign contributors like Sheldon Adelson and industry people are shaping travel schedule to places, his travel schedule to places like Israel and Morocco. We're going to talk about how Scott Pruitt's tenure at the EPA is affecting our environment. Since the Trump administration took office, the Natural Resource Defense Council has sued the EPA on average about once every eight days. Uh, they called for Scott Pruitt to be fired in March. With me is Ria Su. She's president of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks a lot for joining me. Good to see you. It's always good to be here, Jerome. Thank you. I'm, this is um, kind of otherworldly, the experience we're having with Scott Pruitt. Um, day after day, wild things come out that really uh, point to an ethical behavior that, uh, you know, I, I don't know, it's un- it's kind of unprecedented. The string of it, it goes back to scandals in Oklahoma. He, ju- he does not seem like the right man for the job here. Well, I think it's been very clear, actually, even before he was confirmed for this position, that he was not the right man for this job. I think um, uh, the obvious ethical lapses in judgment or the lapses in um, morality uh, uh, only further 
uh, uh, bolster the reality that he is not fit to serve in this office. Um, but in addition to uh, the legendary and, and truly breathtaking, I mean, just listening to the overview of all of the different ethical violations um, uh, and investigations that are occurring, it is breathtaking. It is legendary. It is, it is, I think, unprecedented. I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like it. And rightly so. A lot of people are focusing on um, those uh, controversies uh, around his tenure. But I think the other part of the story that is equally important to tell is the story that he is the worst environmental protection agency administrator we've ever had. And he's the worst because of the nature of the decisions he's making around protecting the environment or lack thereof, right? The agency is is responsible for what um, its name implies. It's the Environmental Protection Agency. And almost every single decision that Scott Pruitt has been in charge of since becoming the administrator has done exactly the opposite of that. They have rolled back protections. They have rolled back public health standards. Um, and they are uh, doing so in a way that actually is very similar to um, uh, the ethical lapses where uh, lobbyists come in, uh, he has meetings with them, and turns around and makes a decision on their favor. Uh, give us, give us an example of, of what you mean there. <clears throat> so uh, there's a very noxious pesticide that's used on agricultural crops called clopyrifos. Clopyrifos uh, is actually a nerve gas. It was um, formulated during World War II by the Nazis. Um, it became uh, 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 in use for um, uh, for pesticidal products um, that were both used in household uh, ways as well as in agricultural ways. Um, it was very clear, um, and the science has just been mounting, that this chemical is noxious and it's a danger to humans. Uh, they banned it from household use. Um, EPA scientists had recommended it for a complete ban in agricultural use. Um, Scott Pruitt got that recommendation, and two weeks after he met with the head of Dow Chemical, which is the manufacturer of Clopyrifos, um, he shelved that recommendation. So you can still um, see Clopyrifos being sprayed all over our strawberries and lettuces and um, uh, and crops throughout the country. It's a dangerous pesticide. EPA scientists have stated and uh, illustrated the case for why it's a danger to human health. And nevertheless, lobbyists seem to win out. I think the same is true with, um, it sounds like coal ash is something that has been uh, on a controversial thing. It's it's a dangerous thing, and there are tons and tons and tons of it uh, that are created every year after the burning at coal plants, and it's got to be disposed of properly, and the coal industry seems to be winning that battle. Uh, that's right. I mean, I think the oil and gas uh, uh, fossil fuel industry writ large um, is pretty happy with what's happening in the administration. Um, the administration's uh, either not holding them to account for violations that are occurring or not moving forward on regulations that would protect human health, uh, waterways, uh, the quality of our drinking water, um, the quality of our air uh, um, uh, by the very companies that are responsible for either cleaning up their waste or not polluting in the first place. 
I think one of the more interesting things is how many industry people he has brought into the EPA. They're not even just meeting with him on for, and getting what they want. They're inside making the regulations now. Uh, there's a long list of the number two guy is uh, former Murray Energy guy. That's right. And the, there's all sorts of other attorneys and, and people he's brought in just from the industry now. Right. Um, there seems to be, again, a very... Uh, absent lack of understanding of conflict of interest or what that actually even means. So the revolving door of lobbyists that have worked against EPA regulations their entire career now suddenly in charge of EPA regulations. I mean, they're bringing in the laundry list of things that they not only complained about or didn't like from the Obama administration, they're bringing in the laundry list that frankly go all the way back to the creation of the agency in the early 70s. Um, And they're systematically not only rolling back again all of these more recent standards, they're systematically going after the heart and soul of that agency's ability to protect our communities, our families, and our health. Do you think they're motivated by a sincere belief that this is costing people too much money? I think that it's very dangerous to think that there's an overarching ideology associated with um, the decisions that are being made uh, at the EPA. I think it is not as complex as as that. I think it's not as intellectual as that. I think it it really does go back to um, being bought and paid for. Right. Scott Pruitt's apartment was bought and paid for by lobbyists. Scott Pruitt's trips and agendas for our trips are being bought and paid for by lobbyists. Scott Pruitt's decisions around what he regulates or what he doesn't enforce are being bought and paid for by lobbyists. So, again, I don't think there's an ideological states rights, federal rights, uh, cost, whatever. I mean, I think it comes, again, back down to the very prominent ethical lapses that Scott Pruitt embodies, and frankly, this entire administration demonstrates. I'm talking with Rhea Suh. She's president of the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we're talking about the EPA and Scott Pruitt. Um, I mentioned at the top that you're suing uh, the EPA. One, uh, you got a lawsuit every eight days. Uh, that that's a lot of lawsuits. What uh, do you have some favorites you'd like to tell people about? Well, just to clarify, so we have almost sixty lawsuits since we filed um, uh, since the Trump administration has come into office, including one that we filed the day after the inauguration. Um, and those lawsuits cover the gamut of the different agencies. I would say nearly half of those lawsuits are focused at the EPA in particular. There's been a ton of activity um, coming out of that um, agency. But, you know, we also have filed lawsuits against the Department of the Interior, against the Department of uh, um, Energy, against the Department of Transportation. So, um, you know, what's happening at EPA is of uh, significant concern, but what's happening at EPA is not isolated in terms of um, the anti-environmental actions of this administration. In in terms of... um, my favorite case um, is a case that we did actually file the day after the inauguration. Um, and it's a case that we won without actually even having to go to trial. It was a case against the EPA for um, refusing to move forward on the regulation of mercury discharge from dental offices. Um, you know, if you think about it, uh, number one, you know, we've all had that experience of sitting in the dental chair. Um, there's uh, there's uh, filters that are supposed to be in place in the sinks to capture mercury. We all know that mercury's a very bad um, uh, compound and in particular um, incredibly toxic to children. Um, And so 
so this was a pretty straightforward, you know, you didn't really need uh, a whole uh, wealth of uh, scientific evidence to understand the need for protecting waterways from mercury discharge. Um, you know, the uh, administration decided in uh, a completely unsubstantiated way that they just didn't like the regulation and they didn't want to move forward with it. Um, so they withdrew the regulation. We filed suit. Um, and frankly, the Department of Justice, I think, recognized that there was no case that they could defend. Um, the EPA hadn't filed, hadn't followed any of the appropriate rules and actually try in actually promulgating the withdrawal of a regulation. Um, uh, and I think uh, uh, understanding that there was no possible legal defense that they had, they did a 180 after we filed suit and reinstated that regulation. Now, there's been a couple of other examples of that throughout the administration um, where Frankly, they're not even following the rule of law with respect to how it is they want to do these rescind, repeal, uh, remove actions. Um, and so we're able to, uh, again, hold the administration accountable to the rule of law with respect to the fact that they're not following it. Um, and I just have to say, say one other thing that I think is quite ironic about Administrator Pruitt in particular. Um, as Attorney General, he ran something called the Rule of Law Defense Fund. Um, he's a lawyer. He was an Attorney General. I think it's quite ironic that not only has he not followed the Rule of Law in his in the own in the very agency that he now uh, runs. Um, he clearly is skirting very close to, if not violating, the rule of law with his own behaviors as a, a government official, a cabinet official. How do you um, – I was talking – I heard Gina McCarthy talk not too long ago, the former EPA administrator, and she was uh, – tried to be encouraging and say, you know, they're, they're going about things so badly that they don't realize that they're not in accordance with the law. And – and this is part of their whole agenda was to whack, uh, you know, a lot of rules. They'd wanted to just eliminate rules on, on the, the idea of it. It seems like they've gone out and tried, almost done that and tried to, and then they have to back down in court uh, almost immediately. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that, I, I'm not sure if it necessarily gives me comfort that there's, um, so much uh, ineptitude <laughs> uh, happening in these agencies. But I do think they're making a lot of mistakes. And I think, uh, thank goodness, there's organizations like NRDC that are suing and holding them accountable to those mistakes. And thank goodness that we do have a rule, a set of rules and laws that are going to be enforced by the judicial branch. I wanted to ask about fuel economy standards, which has become such a big issue. There's states, Illinois and uh, New York and California are all suing about the uh, fuel economy standards now. And this seems to be uh, a really fundamental change and um, something that, uh, uh, that kind of runs counter to where the world is going. That's absolutely right. So uh, we are expecting an announcement from the White House in the next couple of weeks about fuel economy standards. Um, we expect that announcement to be uh, pretty devastating. Um, and in particular, I think it's going to hold um, uh, the standards to 2020 levels. And so um, this translates into the stickers that you see on the cars when you go to the dealer and you look at how many miles per gallon your car um, can run off of. Um, you know, those stickers are in place because people want to 
not people don't want to pay a lot <laughs> to have to gas up their cars a lot. Fuel economy standards have actually really benefited consumers um, and benefited the pocketbooks of consumers. But in addition to that, they've benefited from preventing hundreds of thousands of premature deaths a year. They've benefited from um, helping us curb our greenhouse gas emissions. The rule that I think will um, be announced by the administration again in a couple of weeks will literally put half a billion metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere that could have been eliminated through greater fuel economy standards. So um, I think for all of those reasons, it's very hard to understand why the administration would move forward with such um, a dramatic departure from this rule. It's a, it's, it's, it, this regulation is not unpopular. Again, it benefits consumers. Um, and certainly with the automotive uh, manufacturing industry, you know, electric vehicles are the leading edge of technology and, frankly, the leading edge of the market. So this is just conf another confounding um, uh, 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 announcement from the administration. Ria Sa is the president of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Scott Pruitt and our air and water. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stelik. He'll talk with director Jason Reitman. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. WBEZ film contributor Milos Stalek interviews the world's great filmmakers here Fridays on Worldview. This week, Milos speaks with Jason Reitman, who's carved out a niche in comedy that deals with life's transitional moments. After Juno and Young Adult, Reitman's new film is called Tully. You seem like a great mom. <laughs> great moms organize class parties and casino night. They bake cupcakes that look like minions. All the things I'm just too tired to do. Honestly, even getting dressed just feels exhausting. I open my closet and I just think, didn't I just do this? Yeah, but that's the downside of living on a planet with a short solar day. Although Jupiter's even shorter. You're like a book of fun facts for unpopular fourth graders. So, Jason, there's a commercial which just came out for your new film, Tully, which positions it as part of a trilogy, but that was not part of any kind of a plan. I prefer to think of Tully as part of our own Star Wars-style trilogy. Okay. Uh, I think it's kind of like the Marvel Universe. Okay. <laughs> and the Marvel being what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what superhero she would be, although it would be kind of funny if uh, Diablo and I, I mean, someone recently mentioned that Diablo's initials are DC, so um, okay. <laughs> we could have our own DC universe filled with characters who are just kind of self-evaluating their own lives. Uh, no, when I met Diablo 12 years ago... Diablo being the screenwriter. Of Diablo Cody, yeah, <laughs> the screenwriter of Juno, Young Adult, and Tully. When I met her, certainly I didn't think that this was the beginning of a lifelong storytelling marriage. I thought, we're going to make a movie together. And five years later, we made Young Adult. And what's happened is that, you know, we're basically the same age. And there's all this kind of connective tissue between our life experiences. And so often I feel like there's something that I want to say, but I don't have the words for. And she articulates it in a screenplay better than I ever could have. 
And all of the characters in all three films, including Tully, are women who are in some way undergoing a crisis or troubled. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting. I think people too often mistake plot for location. And, you know, teen pregnancy isn't the plot of Juno. It's really the location of Juno. And the overarching plot through all three films is this concept of where are we on our timeline and this feeling of, am I too early? Am I too late? Did I miss the on-ramp to life somehow? And Tully is that moment when you become a parent and you start to think of your younger self as a different human being. You have to actually close a chapter of your life. And Marlo, who is the main character in Tully, played by Charlize Theron, is a third-time mother. She's having a third child, living a stressful life, which is very common. Yeah, I mean, Diablo just had her third child, actually, when she wrote the script. And so what attracts you to these women? Because the men, for example, in all three films, including in Tully, come off not negative, but they're not very effective or effectual. It's funny because uh, you look at them and you say negative, and if I asked Diablo about them, she'd say, I think it's a fairly accurate portrayal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, in Tully, you know, Ron Livingston plays a dad who probably, you know, does a small percentage of the work but takes more credit for it, and I think that's... uh, I think that's pretty average. I think this guys probably do 5% of the work and take 90% of the credit. Well, as Marlo is breastfeeding and dealing with all the crisis, the crying baby, I mean, all of the stress, he kind of tunes out playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong. He's a good dad. Takes part. He does the homework with the kids. He cares. Um, they're all eating dinner together every night. I mean, he actually is a present father, but there's no experience like being a mom. And, you know, what I think Diablo really tunes into, well is that feeling in the middle of the night when you don't know what you're doing. And any parent can relate to that, that feeling when you you just wonder to yourself, okay, am I completely messing up my kids? I never got the rule books on this. And it's very lonely. It can be scary. And so the solution here is this night nanny, which I never heard of, which comes to Marlo recommended by her well-to-do brother who's paying for it for 30 days. And Mm -hmm. so this being arrives to help her out. I never heard of Night Nanny. It's an actual thing. I think it's a coastal rich person thing. But, uh, you know, Tully shows up and she really is kind of the Mary Poppins of this movie. There's something magical about Mackenzie Davis, the actress who plays her. There's something so uh, curious and intelligent about her eyes and the way that she takes in Marlowe's life. And, you know, what we find out fairly quickly is that she's not there just to change diapers and help feedings, that Mackenzie is there to save Marlowe. Well, so we have archetypes of nannies, Mary Poppins, of course, being the most famous one. So you modernized her. Yeah, I suppose. And it's interesting. I would say that in the same way that I said teen pregnancy is not the plot, but the location of Juno, I think nanny culture and parenting is the location of Tully, not the plot. I think the plot is really, how do you come to terms with growing up? How do you come to terms with that moment when you can imagine the younger version of yourself looking at you now and going, really, this is who I became? Well, your films are all comedies. Well, not all, but... (laughs) When they work through their comedies. (laughs) When they don't work their comedies that nobody's laughing at. So you see comedy as a way of entering also this kind of social depiction of stories that are really not being told because we don't really have very many films that deal with the difficulties of motherhood or teenage pregnancy or... Right. 
I, I think comedy is a direct pathway to truth. I mean, look at Michelle Wolf over at the Correspondence Dinner. We cut through to the truth really fast when we use humor. With drama, you kind of dance around it. And comedy allows us to <laughs> just look straight into it and, and say things that we would otherwise never say. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stalik, speaking with filmmaker Jason Reitman, whose new film is called Tully, which opens today. But yet you were, I read someplace, provoked or inspired to go out and interview mothers? You know, parenting has been portrayed a lot in movies, Mm. mostly in a very slapstick way. And I wanted the audience to be able to look up at the screen and see themselves. I think there's two reasons you go to the movies. Either you go because you want a Star Wars or Avengers experience, you want to to travel to another world, or the screen should be a mirror, and you should see yourself in it. And those are the kinds of movies I want to make. But they need to be authentic, and they need to be authentic for 2018. So we passed out these questionnaires to some young mothers, and they were unbelievably forthcoming, which really taught me two things. I mean, one, we got extraordinary detail. Things like, you know, the parents putting the baby on top of the dryer while it was tumbling to help the baby go to sleep, or the amount of mothers who confessed to dropping their cell phones on their children's faces. Uh, But the other thing I got about it was just the overwhelming honesty, and that I felt like I was in touch with mothers who were not talking to anyone about what they were going through, that somehow in a time where we talked to everyone about what's wrong in our lives and what medication we're taking, there's something very taboo still about talking about the difficulties of being a new parent. It seems to me that you're walking a very difficult tightrope in a way because John Simon, I don't know if you remember him, who was a very negative film critic, I think wrote for National Review. I mean, Mm -hmm. was very articulate, but very good at trashing things. (laughs) But one time he said that the most difficult element to achieve is that line which really exists between tragedy and comedy. It's a very narrow line. You can go either way. And so to navigate this is really very difficult. And it seems to me it's something that you're doing, not necessarily with tragedy, but with social reality. Uh, That's very kind of you. Thank you. And those are the films that I grew up loving. And those are the films that uh, I admire and the films that I aspire to make. And, you know, the trick of being on a tightrope is uh, when you slip, you fall. And it's a long fall. And I've had both. I feel like I've had times where I've gotten to the other end of the tightrope and I've had times where I've taken the fall and it sucks. And Tully, the nanny, is kind of a wild character. I mean, she's kind of a disruption. In a way, she helps protect uh, Marlo and protect the family, and she's overly protective in some ways because she does more than is expected. And on the other hand, she's kind of a wild spirit and not quite rooted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's such a spontaneous quality to her, and I think that was really important. I think, uh, look, uh, the life of being a new parent, there's a monotony to it. You're doing the same thing on a schedule, day and night. Uh, you know, one hour you're up, one hour you're down, and then, you know, you're feeding and you're changing, and all of a sudden this spirit comes in, and it's the spirit of Mackenzie Davis, who's just this incredible, you know, She's six feet tall, and she has these big blue eyes, and she has so much energy, and she's funny, and even the way she says things reminds me of Ellen Page. She has this unique way of kind of getting her mouth around words, and she breaks up that monotony. She breaks up the schedule. You're listening to Wilvia. I'm Elastelic, speaking with filmmaker Jason Reitman, whose new film is called Tully. You grew up in a filmmaking family. Your father's a filmmaker. So was there ever a question that you would not be a filmmaker? Absolutely there was a question. You know, as the son of a famous filmmaker, I'm well aware of how people feel about the children of famous filmmakers. If you're the son of someone famous, most likely you are talentless and you probably have a drug or alcohol problem and you're probably stuck up and not very smart. And I thought, why would I go into a job where people just presume this of me of just walking in the door? And for a moment... I went pre-med because I thought no one questions you if you become a doctor. No one ever wonders why you 
became a doctor. And it was actually my father who took me aside and said, uh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm scared. And he said, well, being scared isn't a reason to do anything. And he said, you need to find something with magic in it. I think you're a storyteller. So he understood you? Or yeah. something about you? I mean, look, he's the first Jewish father in history to tell his son, don't be a doctor, <laughs> exactly. become a director. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what movies did you watch? What inspired you to do the kinds of films that you make? Well, I think I kind of went through two phases. I think as a kid, I liked uh, uh, big movies like everybody else. And I loved Star Wars and I loved Die Hard and I loved Back to the Future. Uh, I loved Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, but there was a moment in the 90s when there was this influx of independent cinema. And it was our introduction to names like Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson and Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola and Alexander Payne and Richard Linklater, too, that were really important for me. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, I'm not a film fan. I want to be a filmmaker and I want to make movies like these. But it seems to me that in your own films, text is also really very important. So in a way, I would think that you hark to an older tradition like Billy Wilder or Lubitsch, films in which dialogue, text were also very important. I love Lubitsch and obviously really admire uh, Billy Wilder. It's amazing how current Billy Wilder films continue to feel. You can watch one today and it feels like it was made yesterday. But look, I mean, the truth was that that initial moment was those 90s filmmakers and then followed shortly thereafter by the 70s filmmakers, you know, um, guys like Hal Ashby and, uh, you know, Michael Ritchie's first trilogy on winning. I thought those films are exceptional. So I watched both of your films again, the young adults and Tully, of course, uh, with Charlie Theron. Mm. Uh, she's a very interesting actress, especially, I think, with you, because you seem to give her a lot of room. <laughs> well, she's a fearless actress. I mean, that's the word that gets used around her the most, and it's true. It doesn't matter what she's doing. She dives in without fear of how she's going to come across, and she wants to feel it. She wants to feel what the characters are feeling, which it's not true for every actor. Uh, she also has a very sneaky, dark sense of humor, which really didn't find its way to the screen until we made Young Adult. And that was, I guess, what was so exciting about that film was recognizing something inside a person that I wanted the rest of the people to see. And you said someplace in an interview that one thing about her is, is that she kind of comes at it from two sides, from both being a method actress in a way of doing all of that research and study and understanding the character and then also a very instinctual side. Uh, yeah, you know, I find that actors in general, for me at least, fall into one of two groups. Uh, either they are kind of a human puppeteer that puppeteers their face and body accurately or they're an actor who wants to feel it and they're inside it and they're so lost in it they literally don't know what's happening on set. And Charlize happens to be a combination of the two. She is completely aware of what she's doing with everything that's happening on set but she's also in it she's feeling in it and you can't help but experience that when you're on set with her um, the temperature shifts in the room so do you do these things like Antonioni was doing with Monica Vitti which after the scene ended he kept following with the camera to give her time to come out of the character <laughs> um, no but I see when she goes in and I do see when she comes out and I do like to keep the camera rolling before and after because you do you never know what you're going to get I mean honestly the exciting thing about working with her is not only what she's doing for herself, it's what she does to everybody else. And the best actors that I've worked with have this impact. They get beneath the ribs of the actor they're working against. And, you know, Ellen Page was the same way on Juno. You know, actors would come in and they'd be like, oh yeah, I heard about this actress, Ellen Page. I heard she's great. And um, kind of waiting to be proven true. And then they would start the scene and no matter who they were, and no matter how much experience they had, 
I would watch Ellen just poke at them. And they would, she would poke and she would break the ribs. She would get to their heart and they would change. And Charlize does the same thing, but it's not poking. She gets right in. You're listening to Wolvia. I'm Milos Telik. I've been speaking with filmmaker Jason Reitman, whose new film is Tully. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we'll have a couple of the chefs that are going to be featured prominently at the James Beard Awards. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. My friend Nari Safavi, a global citizen, is here to, with recommendations for what to do uh, to have fun. Great to see you, Nari. Uh, buenos tardes, Jerome. It's uh, great to be here again, and we're going to have a roundtable of innovators, Ibero-American innovators today. We're going to go to Ibero, Iberian Peninsula for culinary innovations, and then we're going to talk about theater from Argentina, Buenos Aires. This is terrific. And now, um, on the line with us, we have two of the people who are participating in the James Beard Awards, which is taking place on, on Monday at the Lyric in, here in Chicago. Uh, Jose Andres is on the phone with us. He is a chef who is one of the best-known chefs in the country. He's won every possible chefing award, it seems, except for the James Beard Foundation's Humanitarian of the Year Award, which he will get on Monday. And uh, nice to have you with us, Jose Andres. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you. Um, he's well known for his work with World Central Kitchen and uh, Relief in Puerto Rico. Also on the line with us is our local hero, Abe Conlon, and he is a master chef and owner of Fat Rice Restaurant, and he is up for Best Chef of the Great Lakes region. Great to have you with us, Abe Conlon. Thank you for having me here. It's an honor. All right. Nari's going to go right to the heart of things with his question about the Iberian Peninsula. Yes, uh, both of you gentlemen are, uh, uh, are figures that I admire quite a bit as innovators and uh, and other things and activists. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's un honor <laughs> uh, to have you guys over here. And uh, also wanted to, uh, you're both rooted in the Iberian Peninsula and you both have the bug for innovation, being innovators and activists to some extent, uh, both of you. Uh, Jose, can you get us started with where did you get that bug for for innovation instead of sticking to classic Spanish cuisine? <laughs> well, uh, very often it seems that uh, tradition and modernity, they are at odds with each other. That seems that they are fighting. Um, what I've always done is I embrace both. Obviously, I was a very young boy when I was very lucky to work at El Bulli with my boy, mentor friend, Ferran Adria. Uh, when nobody knew that this restaurant was going to become probably the most cutting-edge restaurant in the history. Um, so, you know, very early on, I got my chance there. But we always need to remember that we are always, always based on tradition. And what we try to do is push the envelope forward. 
that's what chefs should be doing in their restaurants. That's what anybody else should do in their in the in different fields. Always pushing up the envelope, but knowing where you're coming from. And Abe, what would you have to say about that? Uh, I ho- I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, for to kn- to know traditions and where you're coming from really um, pushes you forward to to innovate and inspire. Um, for for me, you know, I've I've always been a creative, and I've always. Uh, looked back to the past for inspiration and to really um, just develop and, and grow with it within food and within creativity to uh, see how we can we can push innovation and, and, and move forward altogether. Yeah, actually, one of the things that I would say that uh, from my own experiences hanging out in the Basque country in Spain, in País Vasco, with uh, some of the innovative chefs of that region, uh, I realized that very early that the Spanish chefs, they do not necessarily see modernity and their own traditions as sort of uh, polar opposites. And they don't invent and innovate as opposed to a tradition, but they as almost as an homage to their tradition. And in a way, I think that what Jose is saying is spot on. Jose, I've got to ask a question about your humanitarian work. Um, it really started with, uh, after the earthquake in Haiti, you started with World Central Kitchen, and you uh, think you can use the power of food to empower communities and strengthen economies. You went and uh, helped feed people in Puerto Rico, and you've written a book about the experience. We fed an island, the true story of rebuilding Puerto Rico one meal at a time. Um, what, what, how do you think food fits in as a, a, a and the humanitarian impulse fits into uh, what you do? Well, listen, I, I don't, quite frankly, I don't think the thousands, millions of people around the world that, that they go every day and try to help others and sometimes don't get uh, any recognition. Uh, nobody does it you're expecting an award or anything you do it for in my case for the simple belief that I want to be giving a chance to others in the same way I got many chances to make it in life so you know um, I was a very young boy when my mother took me first to Red Cross to volunteer and learning CPR and the family maneuver and I was a young boy in the Spanish Navy, and his first time I think I saw hunger is when we went to Africa, to Ivory Coast, to the favelas in Rio Janeiro. And I think that's the moment I really realized that, that there we had two different worlds. The one we live in, uh, the, the people that seems are doing well. I was the lucky one that I ended in a family that more or less working in family, but I had everything I needed. But then was not the case for many. So I think for me, moving to Washington, D.C., uh, I began volunteering here in, in, in a local organization called D.C. Central Kitchen, where Robert Egger, its founder, was a guy that had a very clear idea that waste was wrong and that wasting people was wrong, too. So put both together and began training, uh, training homeless to become cooks and began making sure that the wasted food that was allowed to be thrown out, we will do meals that we could be uh, feeding the people in need in the Washington, D.C. area. From there, everything is simple. I think it's the role. I think chefs like us, we see the few. I think it's our our destiny to also try to be involved in feeding the many. And, and that's what many, many, many in my community, we've been doing for many years to make sure that, that, that we bring our expertise uh, and, uh, in our free time 
to try to make sure that food becomes an agent of change, empowering people and communities one plate at a time. So very much that was behind my, my, my need of being part of the solution and I stop throwing money at the problem and just investing into smart solutions. We're talking with a couple of the chefs who are nominated in the James Beard Awards. Jose Andres there is up for, is going to get the Humanitarian of the Year Award. And Abe Conlon is on with us. He's a master chef, owner of Fat Rice Restaurant. He's up and nominated for Best Chef. And um, Abe, tell, tell us more about yourself and about, you. you Fat Rice is your restaurant. Um, how did you get or there? Or X Marks, the pop-up that, yeah, that, he, t- that he started up with. Yeah, tell us about the, the pop-up that you started with and how you evolved to. <laughs> Fat rice. Absolutely. So, you know, X Marks was kind of a clandestine supper club uh, that we started in Chicago uh, that I really wanted to, you know, and I think Jose is right now at the end of at the end of this within creativity and innovation, really food is about sharing and taking care of other people. And, you know, taking a moment to be able to share that love through food uh, was really the goal of, of X Marks and to bring strangers together and to, for people to share a, a, a common experience and to have common experiences together. And, you know, it was five years or so that experimenting with many different types of cuisines, many different types of traditions, uh, that I landed on fat rice, where I was able to explore my own Portuguese culture as well as uh, the other cultures that the Portuguese mingled with over the past 500 years. And now I get to explore those traditions and to uh, show, show them to the world through fat rice. Well, it's super cool to have both of you here for the James Beard Awards and uh, enjoy yourselves Monday night at the uh, event at the Lyric Opera. Abe Conlin is with us, uh, the owner of Fat Rice now, and Jose Andres, uh, master chef, and he's the author of We Fed an Island, the true story of rebuilding Puerto Rico one meal at a time. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much. For un placer. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Nari, your second recommendation stays with the Iberian theme, but... Um, Ibero-American theme. Ibero-American theme. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. This is, there was just a lot going on this week that I could not pass up. And uh, the, the, the play, The Madre, was a moving play that I saw last weekend. And uh, with a story that's based in Buenos Aires and what was, being, what was going on in that country, uh, in Argentina, in the 1970s. And we have a couple of the artists involved with us over here. Ricardo Gutierrez is here, the director of The Madres, and Lorena Diaz is play is with The Madres. She plays Carolina in the film. Great to meet you guys in the in the play. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> Thank you for having us. <laughs> and uh, and it's at the Victory Gardens Theater. Is that the proper name for it now, it, or is it the Richard produced, Christensen? Uh, right. So-and-so? It, it's produced by Teatro Vista, a Latino-based ensemble that has been in Chicago for um, uh, over 25 years. And uh, we perform in our in residency at the Victory Gardens in their uh, Richard Christensen Theater in, in the Bayref. Mm-hmm. And where did the idea for this original project come from? Why did you want to do this? Well, I was first introduced to the play by a few of our ensemble members who had participated in a reading of the play written by Stephanie Allison Walker. And uh, they raved about it and said, this is a play that you need to read. And I did, and I was uh, fully engaged and terrified, but also laughed at, at the script because there's a lot of humor in this horror that we have managed to find and put on stage. And uh, I called the playwright, had a great conversation with her, piqued their interest. And as we always do at the Atrovista, we had a, a reading 
with our actors, and uh, we all loved the play, and uh, from there we went on to produce it. Yeah, that's uh, my hats off to you. It was really a moving play to watch, and it was, uh, I, I should say, I don't want to deter anybody from going to see it, but it was exhausting to watch, especially Lorena's <laughs> parts, you know, how physically demanding the role must have been for her. And uh, it's uh, it's really a great, uh, you almost feel that the, you, you empathize and sympathize with people in Argentina in the 70s when you all actually go through that process of exhaustion that, you know, very few plays really uh, create that level of sympathy for the subjects. And my hat's off to you. You guys do so. Lorena, tell us a little bit about yourself and your own approach to doing such a demanding role. Uh, well, I definitely am um, inspired and motivated by the people of Argentina that went through this. Um, I wanted to and the be mothers the of mothers. Of yes, I have a special Plaza place for Maggio. mothers in my heart. I am one myself, and I c- couldn't imagine the horror of this um, actually being a reality for a mother. And they continue their work today, the mothers of Argentina, uh, with the new science that comes out around DNA. They're able to find their grandchildren that were disappeared and uh, reunite them with their original families. So many new layers to this story. I know. It just doesn't end. It is. It's a theatrical onion. <laughs> you peel it. It just is amazing. Yeah. Makes you cry. Makes you laugh. Um, and I, I'm proud that this show, it is, It is. what did you call it, Ricardo? A, a horror, fun Oh, I, I told the cast that we need to find the, the humor the in the The humor in the, in the horror. horror. <laughs> yes. And I am a comedian at heart uh, first. And so that was important to me was to find places in this, in this piece where we can uh, make you laugh and then make you cry later. How does that work? Uh, how do you ma- manage? Uh, th- there were jokes written into this. It was um, it was a funny thing. It's not even so much jokes. It's just that um, when you are confronted with... Um, the disappearance of children and loved ones, there's also a disappearance of hope because during this time period, uh, the the junta, the military dictatorship, was uh, squelching uh, artists, uh, musicians, right. anyone who had any kind of socialist niche to them. And when you are confronted with such a government and uh, the fear of silence and the absence of hope, the only way that you can resolve is with the human resilience that's within you. And a lot of that resilience is, of course, uh, uh, humor. And you have to figure out ways to deflect. And one We're of the finding ways to deflect that now. Is that, and we find it in I the mean, script. I mean, even Americans now are finding humor and the horror of things that are going on in this Absolutely. country. And we're not the only country going through this right now. Venezuelans and Puerto Ricans are experiencing much of the same. And mm-hmm. so I think humor comes from tension. And um, in, in comedy, I learned that the audiences laugh when there's a tension is created and then the tension breaks and there comes uh, laughter uh, well, in comedy. Yeah. And if I may, I'd, I'd like to interject as well that, that uh, the humor, um, this uh, resonates with so many people. It's also a play about motherhood and the power and the resilience of, of, of women. And if we look at the march, the women's march of uh, about a year ago and then mm-hmm. it continues, uh, a lot of the placards that you could see <laughs> that were held up were just yes. biting, biting humor. Yes. And, and laughter was involved and unification. And any time you are joined with your fellow people to fight an evil cause, mm-hmm. there is a celebration. And part of that celebration is with humor as well. Well, I think what uh, what is uh, what a lot of times gets missed by stories of oppression, uh, at least for, from my perspective, coming from a country where there has been a history of legacy of oppression also, uh, 
is that uh, it's not just about a system just beating up on your head and telling you you can say this, you cannot say do that, you cannot do this and do, do this or that. But it's really about how insidiously a structure of oppression weaves itself into the fabric of your life. Yes. And this one is one of the few plays I've seen in this country that manages to capture that. And then how humor comes to try to disrupt a little bit of that influence mm -hmm. on that fabric of your life. Yes. And that's where, where I think the humor becomes is not just the comic relief but it's actually it's a method of resistance for these individuals it's a wonderful observation Absolutely. um lorena you play carolina in the play yes. the madres uh, tell us about the character carolina is um defiant strong uh but she also is raised in in or she lives in a, the home with her mother she's divorced and has raised her daughter with her mother on her own and so when her daughter goes missing um, in her, she's 20, 21 years old, she becomes desperate to find her and goes against the grain, marches with the, with the mothers in the Plaza de Mayo in order to protest the disappearance of her daughter. It's the only thing that she can think of to do um, in order to find her. One of the great developments in the play is also uh, she lives with her mother, and uh, the grandmother is played by Ivan Cole, yes. who is a Teatro Vista ensemble member and uh, a legend in Puerto Rico uh, right. with her work as an actress, a singer, and a it's dancer. A beautiful job. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely gorgeous. And um, she was last in Chicago about 10 years ago doing a play at, uh, at the Goodman Theater with Goodman, a lot yes. of our ensemble members. Yeah. And she worked with our ensemble members, yeah. and she pretty much came, came to us and said, I want to be on your ensemble. Right. I am going to That's be on great. your ensemble. <laughs> and we've been looking for a project for her for a number of years that would fall within her very hectic uh, schedule. As you know, she is a regular on Jane the Virgin. She plays the, the matriarch, the yeah. matriarch uh, on that show. Mm -hmm. And this worked out uh, for us. And so we're just very, very happy to have Yvonne uh, with us. <laughs> I was ecstatic. I told Ricardo that I would wash her feet with yes. my hair <laughs> if she would take the role. <laughs> when I now she's your mom. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. <laughs> well, this is terrific. The Madres is at uh, the Teatro Vista production of The Madres is at the Victory Gardens Theater through May 27th. Yes. And it sounds like a terrific show, and I hope everybody gets to see it. Uh, Nari Safavi, thanks a lot for joining us here for another great edition of Weekend Passport, and thanks a lot to Ricardo Gutierrez, director of the Madres, and uh, Lorena Diaz from the Madres. Uh, great to talk with you. Good luck with the production. Wonderful Thank being you here. so Thank much you. for having Hasta us. Luego. Yes, yes. Yep. Teatrovista.org for tickets. <laughs> And uh, Monday on Worldview, we're going to talk about Karl Marx. It is his 200th birthday, and we will spend the hour working through some of his legacy in the world. Hope you can join us for that Monday on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galli Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.